Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing With Science. In a recent show, we addressed the topic of gender in sport. Today, we explore another contentious issue, that of mental health. If you realize that about one in five adults in the USA suffer from mental illness, it's no surprise this serious issue is present in the world of sport. Yes, and some of sports' major stars have opened up about their battles with mental illness, like Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympian of all time, for one. Another athlete to make his stand is former NBA player Royce White, who will be our first guest. And following Royce White will be neuroscientist Heather Berlin, as well as Krista Van Slingerland, a researcher at the University of Ottawa and co-founder of Canada's first centre for mental health and sport. But first, as Chuck said... Let's get to our interview with Royce White. Former NBA first round draft pick. So, you know yes, what? Coming out of college, that's going to be someone special. That's right. Last played for the London Lightning of the National Basketball League of Canada. But it doesn't stop there. Mm-hmm. He led his team to the Canadian Championship yep. whilst being voted MVP of that same season. That's right. Been an interesting road so far. But there are all sorts of things to unlock, unpack and discuss. And as the title of the show will tell you, mental health has played a large part in Royce White's basketball history. Yeah. So, Royce, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for being yeah, here. Thanks, thanks for having me, guys. You, Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You know, before we even do anything, I think it's important to have you tell your own story in your own words, because there's a lot that has been written about you. I've watched quite a few little um, interviews of people talking about you. I've written, read other things that people, other players have quoted uh, um, speaking about you. But now that we have you here, instead of moving forward, let's just have you tell your story and then we can go from there. Yeah, well, I'll say, you know, overall, I'm a person that believes in himself and and I believe in humanity uh, greatly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd say, you know, the central theme of my story is about five years ago, I had a theory. And my theory was that the mental health dynamic was at work in the NBA in large part the same way it was in a greater society and that 
anxiety and depression and trauma and stress and addiction uh, and ultimately stigma was having a very pervasive effect in the underbelly of the league. Um, and, you know, that was that was the intuition that I had. But in a, in a more proximal in a more proximal sense, um, I'm a person who was diagnosed with anxiety disorder in high school at the age of 16. Um, I was very public about my anxiety disorder in college. Uh, upon entering the draft, uh, the conversation about the 2012 draft beyond Anthony Davis's uh, extremely uh, it, the excitement around Anthony Davis and mm-hmm. his extreme talent and attributes was the mystery of of where I would be drafted, and and not because. I lacked the skill or I lacked the passion or the intensity or the feel for the game. It was because there was a conversation happening within the NBA uh, with GMs, scouts, et cetera, and, and all of the draft prospect experts, the, the mock draft board guys, uh, that was really questioning how the NBA viewed mental health. And this is before I was ever drafted. Right. Um, so I was hearing that chatter because the players and, and the people within inside the league are the only ones involved in that conversation besides what makes it, its way out onto the Internet for the public to, to interact with. And even when it does, it's very, very minimal you know, information that the public is given access to. Um, but I was given access to all of the things that the GMs were saying in regards to how they felt anxiety was a risk and how mental health was, you know, uh, more so unknown. Um, and upon my arrival in the league, when it came close to time to start the season, I went to my team and I asked, "What what's the mental health policy? You know, what's the program? What what are we going to do uh, to create the same type of environments that I've had success with in the past, be it at Iowa State or be it in high school at, at in uh, uh, Hopkins High School here in Minnesota, which both were very progressive uh progressive environments in terms of the way that they viewed mental health. Uh-huh. Um, and, and again, as a rookie, I had no clue really what the answer was going to be. I, I mean, I'm fresh out of fresh out of water, so to speak, and, and coming into an entirely new corporation that has, you know, a 50 plus year history and, and is a huge global apparatus. And uh, I asked what the mental health policy was. We found out that there was no actual policy. So my next initiative was to go to the Wellstone Act, the Wellstone Parity Act, which is something that blossomed from here in Minnesota from the late Senator Paul Wellstone, okay. which which creates parity, which which demanded that the insurance companies view mental uh, health in the same way that they do physical injury in insuring people. Um, and uh, Senator Wellstone was the champion of that of that legislation. So my next strategy was to say, okay, you guys don't have a mental health policy. Let's use whatever you have for physical injury as the template for mental health. It's already has a federal precedent in terms of, of being the the standard of the way mental health should be looked at from a legislative standpoint. Let's do that. Oh they didn't my, want to do that. Oh my God. You, so you, the, first of all, let me just say that for uh, any, uh, right now, uh, anybody who's listening has got to be thinking if you know anything about the business of the NBA and all sp- all professional sports, what I just heard you say, I'm thinking to myself, dude, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, man, you got some balls on you. Like, mm-hmm. you are challenging the entire system with questions such as that. 
I mean, did you realize that's what you were doing at that time? Um, I didn't. I didn't understand the gravity of it at the time. Mm, no, wow. I, I actually, I actually am just a a person who suffers from anxiety disorder, and I was more so feeling like um, I was I was coming into an organization mm-hmm. and an environment that had totally dismissed the validity of mental health as a field and as a science. Absolutely. Had they dismissed yeah. it or had they not even considered it to be Well, I, I think it's important that we get into that because, you know, I think what we see in society is a lot of shadows that people can hide in yes. uh, it, through the claim of ignorance. Mm. Yeah. You know, and, and I think most of, not I won't say most of, I'd say a considerable amount of the ignorance is willful. Uh-huh. Yes. And, and, and of course it is because it, once you're enlightened, you have to take action. Otherwise, right. otherwise you are accountable. And so, you know, um, however, let, let me just say that, uh, you know, you have two advocates here uh, in me and Gary. I mean, um, it's I, I have to say, I'm you know, we'll get more into your story because I'd love to hear the progression. I have a feeling, though, that you being kind of the progenitor of a movement Things didn't probably work out for you as well as they could have because whenever you're the first, you 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 normally suffer. Is that is that kind of how it went down? Well, so so I'll tell you. So again, to just to just to tail off the end of the the first part of my my story. Um, so we asked for there to be a parity between physical health and and, and mental health, uh-huh. and they said no to that. Uh-huh. So now we were left in a place where we had no language in our collective bargain agreement, our uniform player contract that related to mental health at all. So my next request is that we create a policy, that we create a policy from from scratch. And they said, no, we can't do that. We won't we won't create a policy. Wow. And, um, you know, not the 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 biggest apprehension that was communicated to me from my team, from the people that I was talking to in the union, the, the NBA office and, you know, vis-a-vis the owners right. uh, was that they were worried that players would be able to fake it, fake it. Yep. I, I, I know it. I know. But let me tell you something that's pretty consistent uh, throughout most of uh, corporate America. It's it, it's just it, it's just such a pseudoscientific. It's ridiculous uh, approach. It's ridiculous, approach, you know. Because here's the thing, and and this is what I meant by the shadows and willful ignorance. As a fan, you probably wouldn't know this unless you have been an athlete at some point in time, which most of us have, but at a high level, and you understand mm-hmm. how it works when it becomes more of a business. You know, via the via the the high level high school, right. um, college, or professional. What what we know as athletes is this. If you have a physical injury, it always comes down to a verbal test. Mm-hmm. If I broke my ankle, I healed it, I did the rehab, I'm now getting ready to come back. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, somebody's going to tell you to go run a sprint. And when you get done, they're going to ask you, how does it feel? How do you feel? Yeah. At that point, you have no more of a chance to fake mental, to fake a physical injury. Uh, than you, uh, you, you would have no more of a chance to fake a mental illness than you would a physical injury at that point. Right. See, the thing is, Royce, I spent 14 years as a professional soccer player in the UK. And if you have the same thought then if, or disagree or agree, I never once met a player who would fake a mental illness because you know what? The reason we get out of bed is to do our thing. 
and you take our thing away from us, mm-hmm. you hurt us. And I can't imagine anybody who would say, I'm depressed, I can't play today. That's, no, I, I, don't, so I, I don't feel I, it. I, I, I completely agree with you. And I thought, you know, uh, going into this, I was more so trying to I was more curious and I was more, uh, you know, concerned about the way that I, my career would go in, in an environment that hadn't really acknowledged mental health as being uh, the primary aspect of health that it is. Uh-huh. Um, but but more so than that, I thought it was just absolutely reprehensible that there would even be a suggestion or connotation mm. that the the best athletes in the world would when they get a chance to find a way to to coward out of competition. Now, am I saying that people don't fake injuries or things like that? No, I won't say that because I, I myself have questioned teammates and the, the validity of their injury and probably in an ignorant fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but ultimately, what I came from was two environments that aired on the side of the person's mental health is way more important, way more dynamic and way more fatal if mis, if mis, uh, if if undersupported than the potentiality or the risk of them faking the illness. Yes. So let's say a guy fakes anxiety. Okay, is it better to to support the guy and make sure that he doesn't become an addict mm-hmm. or make sure that he doesn't commit suicide? Right. Or are we going versus him sitting the game because he you know be, and, and he, he exaggerated the anxiety uh, symptoms? I think right just now, a no brainer. I think no-brainer. right now, first yeah. of all, what you, everything you said is absolutely correct. There's another uh, dynamic at play here too, um, and let me just say full disclosure: um, I suffer from. Uh, a form of anxiety. Uh, did not even know I had it until recently. Uh-huh. I I am currently in therapy. Um, it's uh, it's difficult, and uh, I didn't understand what was happening to me, to be honest, um, because I had gone my whole life, and yeah. I didn't realize that this was that there was something wrong with me. <laughs> I I honestly felt like. Uh, this is just something that this is what people this, this is, is what, what people, people deal do. with. This is what people deal with. That's how I felt. I'm no okay. different to anyone else. Right. This is what other guys are going through. Right. And yeah. so the idea of and this I grew up in a time where get over it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Man up. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, buck up. Right. Those, I mean, this was, I, I grew up in the put some ice on the air. All right. That's all I can tell you. There's a, there's a main reason why you, you never see a player fake mental illness. And that is even as the kind of efforts that you have taken and strides you have taken to bring this out into sunlight and sunlight is the best disinfectant. Um, it is very difficult for people to come forward and nobody wants to have that stigma attached to them yeah. for the purposes of faking anything. That and, doesn't need it. And that doesn't, that need, doesn't it. need it. Nobody's doing that. So, no. you know, so but go thing, ahead. The thing it's, is, it's Royce. an absurd it's 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 it was it was an absurd an absurd claim that was made haphazardly out of reaction of of the fear of the change of the system that was going to ensue if they acknowledged this issue. Wow. And and so and so and, and to, to move the story further along, um, this the, the mental health issue in the NBA was never really about the way that they viewed this issue. They've hidden behind the, the stigma that the entire world faces around regarding the mental health issue. Right. That was a, that was a hiding place for them. The mental health topic in the NBA isn't about whether the players can receive care or not through their team. That's what they're trying to make it be about now and mm-hmm. saying that 
we're providing programs and services for players to get help. Meanwhile, Commissioner Adam Silver is admitting that uh, there is a stigma that he can't guarantee won't factor into their free agency. See, that's a fundamental de-incentive to actually be open and honest about anxiety or mental health struggles. I mean, if we look at other players that have followed you, like Sir Kevin Love, DeMar Rosanne, mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. publicly declared their issues. How do you mm-hmm. feel about the way they were treated as opposed to the way you were treated? You know, we're we're in two totally different echelons or categories of player. We share a common struggle, as does the entire human species, um, in terms of our our struggle and the way that it was presented to the NBA is two totally different situations. You know, two players that had, uh, you know, veteran career status, um, had had all star uh, level accomplishments and accolades. Um, had some security there, had some, you could say, individual leverage there. Yeah. Um, and and versus myself, a player who came in immediately, saw the issue and, and said that the, the urgency of the issue uh, was long overdue um, and that it couldn't wait another nine years. <laughs> you know, so, you know, DeMar DeRozan has been in the league probably seven, eight years, nine years, maybe. And uh, in his ninth year, he brought the discussion forward. And in many ways, his own journey is is a microcosm of the trajectory of the mental health conversation as a whole is that it's always come after the fact mm-hmm. so after you know, the need after the need yeah interesting well you know I've, and and with that being said i, I mean see, i don't be, i don't believe in better late than never i don't believe in that i i you know i've, I've been reading uh heidegger's uh being in time lately and um it's obvious that man's existence has a very fundamental relationship with time. And uh, we have, in a, on a number of fronts, decided that the convenience of our lifestyle, the convenience of our thought, the convenience of our entire being uh, will take precedence over the, the much needed work, or at least what we, what we purport our aspirations to be, whether that's a free America, whether that's freedom of individual expression, whether that's a peaceful world, whether that's a world where people are, are adequately cared for, um, our convenience has, has become a roadblock for that. And this mental health conversation is the example. It's the microcosm of that of that uh, character. Who's the, of, who's the Giants wide receiver? Brandon Marshall. Uh, Brandon Marshall's a running back. Uh, New York Giants, NFL player. He said mental health issues will be the human rights movement of now, of today. I think I think you've echoed those comments, but let me go back to the point you're saying how time is, I want to say, of the essence here. Um, yeah. You would physically screen an elite athlete that was at the beginning, uh, you know, in a draft, all the rest of it. Would you advocate the same with mental screening for the identification of an issue with a younger athlete, so as they don't have to address it and go through a career suffering? Well, I'd only advocate for that if the owners or the decision makers were willing to be properly educated on what it was, what right. mental health is. Okay. And you know, also, I, I also, think that it's important to I think it's important to to broaden the scope of mental health to a place where we don't understand it as anxiety or depression or exactly. or PTSD, where we understand it as the way that people think, feel and interact. Right. And it's another word, another term for the human condition. And when we right. broaden that scope to that place you see that 
the entire human species falls nicely onto a spectrum. Absolutely. Um, you know, so when you understand it that way, then I'd be open to them screening players for mental health. But if you right. if you screen players for mental health in a place in time where all of the decision makers are just going to use folklore and pseudoscience Correct. to then cast judgment, right. then you're actually putting the players in danger. Exactly. Which is a, you're, you're, you're placing them in great peril because what you're doing is yeah. you're arming owners with ammunition to use against them. Uh, the, and, and, which and, is why and, I asked the question. Yeah. And this was, goes yeah. back to what you were doing, um, uh, uh, whether it was uh, consciously or not, but as a rookie coming into the league and asking for actual mechanisms that would allow you the freedom of treatment without being stigmatized, that's what you were doing. You were actually giving people the freedom to be able to go forward and come forward and be diagnosed and yeah. get help. And that can only happen when you have safeguards in place that say, hey, uh, we're not going to look at you as a liability and get rid of you now because we found out that you have this particular health issue uh, well and you guys will you guys will appreciate this because it's it's not even so much that that we're gonna make the choice not to look at you in this in this way in this judgment way it's that the mental health field is a scientific field that has brought us to a place where we can have some faith in the validity of the work that's been done yes Yes. Yeah. And, so and, it's and not so, just it's it, not just you're not going to decide or, or make this snap time judgment about who I am. It's you right. have to surrender your own ignorance to the field of mental health. I made the point when I first came into the league. Uh, how is it at all reasonable that general managers, coaches, owners would be in charge of or lead the way in making mental health decisions? It'd be like me going to have my electricity fixed in my house and and. and you know, uh, hire a, a, a lawn guy to do it mm -hmm. that had no uh, electrician mm -hmm. yeah. training. Well, you, you know what you just did? You not just only is it not only is he not going to do the job right. He's going to it's dangerous. Yeah, I know. It's I'm dangerous. speaking from experience. You just told me the problem with my electrical uh, issue in my house. <laughs> now I know what I did wrong. Now I know what I did wrong. Yeah. I shouldn't have never let that landscaper do that. There you go. <laughs> well, listen, man, we wish you all the best in that endeavor and sure. um, and and every future endeavor. And hopefully as we continue to explore this subject, we can get you back on the uh, on our airwaves. And uh, as I said, you are extremely thoughtful and terribly conscientious. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you, man. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you giving me the time to share my story. That's Royce White. Time to take a break. Yeah. Uh, and thank you once again to Royce White there for his thoughts, his ideas, and his thinking. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with their no surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com guarantees. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. 
And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Welcome back to Playing With Science. Uh, This show, of course, is our mental health show. Um, And we need some experts. And we have two. The first is one you're probably familiar with. Neuroscientist Heather Berlin, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Doctor, how are you? Good. How are you? Oh, doing well, doing well. Thanks. And we're always happy to have you on because we learn so much about the brain and the wonder therein. So here's here's what I'm uh, interested in. We all suffer from anxiety. We all suffer a certain amount of panic at times. We all suffer from phobias. What is it that causes this to be um, categorized as an illness? Right. As opposed, as opposed to just a condition that people experience and then move on with their lives. Right. So anxiety in general is a normal emotion to have, and it's adaptive, right? You know, we've evolved to have this fight or flight response, which is if you see something threatening, you know, it it, um, arouses a lot of hormones and neurochemicals, and it causes your body to respond and to either freeze or run and avoid that that harmful stimuli. But when it gets to become a disorder, basically it's when it's the anxiety or the stress or the fear you experience either to a specific stimuli or in general is excessive. It's persistent. It lasts for a very long time. It's out of proportion with the actual trigger or the fear or the um, anxiety provoking stimuli. Um, And it causes these like avoidance behaviors as well. So, you know, for example, if you have a fear of flying, it might make sense to have a little bit of anxiety, but if it's so much that you can't even get on a plane or it's out of proportion with the actual risks of flying, um, you know, that's when it becomes a problem and it interferes with your personal life, your work, your daily activities, your relationships. That's when we consider it a disorder. Interesting you say that. Um, it's been, there are a couple of high profile athletes, one a soccer player who did have a fear of flying and he's based in Europe, in the UK, and they had to drive him to games if they played in Italy or Germany or Spain. Uh, otherwise, big, big problem. I, I'm just wondering now, doctor, 
we are talking about this condition and it's prevalent throughout possibly 20% of adults in the USA. Can sport exasperate these conditions or is, are there other factors involved? You know, I think that there's, um, we know, yeah, anxiety disorders in general, like that whole category of disorders, about, yeah, 18 to 20% of the U.S. population. It's the most common um, form of mental illness. And we know that there's genetic factors involved as well. So basically, you know, we have what's called the stress diathesis model of psychiatric illness, which means you're born with a predisposition, but it will express itself depending on the stressors that you are exposed to. So whether it's high-performance sports or a really highly demanding job, I don't know, in corporate America, the stress is going to interact with your vulnerability and probably cause a lot of the anxiety disorders to emerge or the symptoms to emerge. So I don't think it's particular that the sports itself will bring on an anxiety disorder. I just think those who are vulnerable or predisposed to anxiety, any kind of major stressor is probably going to exacerbate the symptoms. So would you would you expect it to be more prevalent in an elite athlete, say an NFL quarterback, a, a defensive lineman, or just, I don't want to say average, but a high school athlete? Or is it all the personal way that you you cope or don't cope? Right. I would say, I mean, I'm not, I don't know what the actual statistics are on this, but I would um, presume that the prevalence rate is probably going to be about equal, whether they're playing high school sports or professional sports. Um, What I find with a lot of, um, so I do some neurocognitive testing of, of, of athletes, high performance athletes, people need the NFL and the NHL. And what's interesting is I find that they, they, they perform really well on cognitive tasks, like way better than the average person. So they're, they're above average in many things. But we also know that there, there is sometimes a high comorbidity between or a co-occurrence between people of high intelligence and anxiety disorders. And these guys, like these football players, I mean, they can do memory tasks like you wouldn't believe. And it makes sense because they have to remember all the different plays and what they're supposed to do. And it's actually really cognitively demanding. But so a lot of highly intelligent people tend to there tends to be a higher rate of anxiety disorders amongst that population. So with that in mind, it could be that these um, athletes have a higher prevalence of anxiety disorder than general population. Hmm. So can you tell us what is going on in the brain? Have we been able to um, localize or map exactly what the reaction to the brain is? Is it is it chemical? What exactly is happening in the brain? Is it signaling? What is happening that makes the person become debilitated by something as simple as, oh, my God, I cannot go outside or, oh, my God, I can't get on this plane or something that everybody else finds so simple to do? Right. So there's, as I said, this general fight or flight response. So basically what's called the sympathetic nervous system that arouses you when there's a stressor, uh, which is a normal, again, adaptive body response. And so basically what happens is there's a trigger. Um, let's say, you know, evolutionary speaking, there's like you see an animal, a tiger, it's threatening. Then the brain releases signals in the amygdala and the, into the hypothalamus that releases these hormones um, from the pituitary gland, like ACTH, which is an abbreviation for a hormone that then causes a cortisol response. 
that then causes increased heart rate, you know, um, shortness of breath, um, um, all these kind of physiologic reactions. So that system, that kind of fight or flight response, we really do understand the physiology very well. What happens with anxiety disorders is this response gets triggered to things that are maybe even benign, you know, or randomly triggered. And then they start learning these responses to avoid it. So let's say they randomly had a panic attack and they happen to have been in a mall. Now they're going to start associating fear with going to the mall. And then it leads to these more cognitive um, kind of associations that in therapy you have to try to start to break down so that the the stress response isn't so easily triggered by normally benign stimuli. Interesting. So when you say triggers, now uh, 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 I want to phrase this um, carefully because I don't want to uh, confuse the issue. Um, I'm not speaking of triggers as in the sympathetic nervous system or visualize, being visually uh, exposed to something or even experiencing. But can these disorders be brought on by other mental health issues such as depression or maybe substance abuse or perhaps um, if you're talking about sports players, um, the abuse of maybe steroids or uh, what I'm saying is, can there be another stimulus other than just uh, your brain itself? Right. So either, you know, there's genetic piece predisposition, there's learned behaviors over time and associations, but then there are, there's something actually called substance or medication induced anxiety disorder Uh where, yeah. And it's, it's actually a diagnosis where it's anxiety that's due to um, a substance intoxication or to withdrawal or to a medical treatment. So sometimes these either medications or drugs can trigger an anxiety response. And so as a clinician, you have to be able to differentiate, is it just a person who has an anxiety disorder or is it being triggered by a substance? So that's, that's one issue. Another is, um, with depression, so there's huge, as again, I keep using this word comorbidity, a co-occurrence of depression and anxiety. About 60% of people who have depression also have anxiety and vice versa. And I don't think it's so much that one is triggering the other. I think they have um, some, they have a lot of underlying um, what we call etiology or causes. So for instance, SSRIs or serotonin, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors can treat both depression and anxiety. So when you have something that can treat both, you, you, you start to understand the mechanisms related are, are similar. And that being said, depression can exacerbate anxiety and vice versa. So they don't help each other. But I don't, I don't know that it's that someone who has depression, it triggers the anxiety. I think they just tend to co-occur because they have similar underlying mechanisms. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. Okay. It's interesting, doctor. We're talking here about mental conditions in a negative state and it's obvious that they present and do affect people negatively are there some and i've got one in my mind are there any mental health conditions that could actually be beneficial to an athlete or say a coach Mm -hmm. so what i would say is that in most cases having a full-blown medical like you know psychiatric condition is probably not going to be helpful most of the time it's a hindrance Um, However, there's variation in terms of the severity of the symptoms. So there's something called um, the Yerkes-Dodson curve, which basically says that 
in terms of arousal level or anxiety, there's an optimal level of arousal. So you want to have a little bit, let's say about, about, you're, before you're about to go over on the field or something, a little bit of arousal, a little bit of anxiety, because that helps your performance. But it gets like a curve and you hit the optimal point. And then when it's too much, it starts to become a negative. So, and also like having, you know, like obsessive type traits or attention to detail um, can be a positive thing, both in like academia, you know, where I'm in or, or in sports, when you really are focused and determined and motivated and want to get it right and don't like to either get it wrong or be defeated to an extent, it's the same kind of curve. You're going to have an optimal level of these traits, but once they become too much, they become detrimental. Imagine an athlete had not a far end of the spectrum OCD, but had an element of that. Could that be used as an advantageous part of their abilities and then say for a coach because if you've got OCD attention to detail is your thing and coaches love that uh, better yet better yet it's uh, to, to to further upon Gary's point which I've never thought about it's brilliant uh, it does that mean if there's a spectrum for all of these disorders mm-hmm. exactly I mean they're actually um, it's kind of a misnomer, but they're, they're called like OCD spectrum disorders. That's the new category of these disorders, but they more mean it's a spectrum of OCD type symptoms. Like there's ticks and Tourette's and OCD and they're all related, but I would say it's like a dimension. It's a dimension. And, and you can have, um, let's say obsessive like traits as a personality trait, you can have obsessive personality traits and, and a little bit might be helpful for you. Again, anything, when it becomes too much, it can become interfere, but you know, you got to think the type of people that are attracted to these, um, fields or, or, you know, disciplines, however you want to call it, are, are going to have certain traits that, um, attract them to the sports or to become these, these elite athletes. And those traits might involve things like obsessive attention to detail. Um, but again, I don't think that having the disorder is necessarily an advantage, just having like being slightly higher on certain traits might be. Wow. We are already out of time here. Um, uh, but I just want to ask you one last thing from a scientific standpoint, Royce brought this up, uh, talked about, um, the stigma attached to mental illness and why the stigma was um, somewhat silly because of the science involved. Can you give us an education uh, behind like why and how we look at this medically, clinically, scientifically, as opposed to the way people, quote unquote, feel about mental illness? Right. You know, it's important to understand that the brain is an organ like any other, right? So, and I often use this analogy. It's like if you if you if you get an infection, or you know, you're going to take an antibiotic to treat it. It's a physical problem with a physical solution. You break a leg, you're going to get the treatment you need to fix it. If you have, you know, stomach cancer, you're going to get treatment to fix it. So it's the same thing when the brain is ill. You get a neurochemical imbalance. You have damage. You have problems in the neuro circuitry. It's just another physical problem, but it manifests itself. Its symptoms are mental, and because you can't, and because they're subjective in a sense, because a person can only tell you how they're feeling or what they're thinking and, and you can't objectively see it. Um, it gets this stigma as if, Oh, that can't, maybe it's not real. Or, you know, maybe you're making it up just like physical pain. You can never really know how much pain a person is in. They have to tell you what they're feeling. Right. And we have to either believe them or not believe them. But if we can see the blood streaming out of the leg, we'll say, okay, I believe you're in pain, but you can't see, you know, most 
people can't see inside others' brains. And so it's just what the person is saying. And we see it as a weakness somehow. Like, you know, you should just be able to, you know, buck up and like, oh, you're depressed. Just, you know, suck it up and be happy. I mean, when we really have to understand it's the medical condition that needs to be treated that way. And people should not be stigmatized for having a medical condition. Wow. Well said. Thank you for explaining that. Um, we're sorry to say we're out of time. We've got to get to the break. Um, thank you to Dr. Heather Berlin, Assistant Professor at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Um, yeah, when we take this break, we're going to come back with Krista Van Slingerland. Now, she is the co-founder of Canada's first centre for mental health and sport, a PhD candidate and researcher in mental health and sports, an athlete herself with no doubt an incredibly interesting point of view. She will be with us when we come back after this break. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful, but we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Goodyear Auto Service takes pride in caring for your car. Get in the groove with Goodyear's technician tips. Number 13, inspect your tread. Like a podcast, you're an investigative journalist finding the cracks in the case. And number 64, pump your brakes before you crank that debate. Coming in for routine brake checks are essential for your safety. Goodyear Auto Service, here for the bumps in the road. Get more tips at GoodyearAutoService.com. <laughs> Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Welcome back to Playing With Science and our show today, as you are already aware, is a mental health show. Uh, we've heard from the athlete's point of view. Now let's speak to the experts. Krista Van Slingerland, co-founder of Canada's first centre for mental health and sport, researcher in mental health and sports. Uh, Krista, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm interested um, to basically know you were an athlete yourself, right? Yeah, I played uh, basketball in university. Okay. And so how did, what is it that inspired you to um, make this a concentration? Is it something personal? And if it is too personal, then forgive me. But <laughs> if, or, or is it just personal experience that you were able to make from an observational standpoint that said, hey, something has to be done. This is an area that needs some attention. Um, can you t give us some insight? Yeah, sure. Well, I think it's it's really all of that. Um, my own experience as a varsity athlete struggling with mental illness was not well received. Um, I don't think sport or uh, at least the team that I played with was really ready to support somebody like that. 
Um, and certainly the culture wasn't optimal and, and sport culture in general can be um, detrimental to athletes' mental health. Uh, so I really struggled and I saw a lot of gaps in the care that was available to me as an athlete and in the understanding of coaches, teammates and just the general public. So I felt really strongly that I needed to speak out and tell my story. And since doing that, it's become uh, the focus of my my life and work and both work and personally. Uh, so I went on to, to do a master's and now at the PhD level, uh, I've continued to study this this topic and that's led to the, the co-founding of the Canadian Centre for Mental Health and Sport with uh, Dr. Duran Bush. See, that that's so interesting, Chuck. Because from an athlete's point of view, I'm not happy, I can't find an environment I'm working in, I will speak out and make people aware. Krista has now gone to the next and possibly the level above that by creating an environment where athletes don't just have to make a point of saying, I have this, please help me. There is somewhere to go. So, so Krista, can you explain how you go about or how you went about structuring an environment and what were the key components to ensure there is a nurturing and good environment for athletes? I don't want to say suffer, but have a condition that might be detrimental. Suffering is probably the perfect word because for a, for a lot of people, you're dealing with it on your own. You're dealing with it in isolation. You're dealing with it in fear of being stigmatized. You're dealing with it um, not knowing what kind of reception you're going to receive when you come forward and ask for help. And all of these things actually contribute to an environment of suffering. And so when you say someone suffers with mental health issues, I think suffering is the perfect word. Yeah, I always tell people that uh, mental illness is more like diabetes than a cold and that uh, you don't really ever get back to your normal state of functioning, but you're in a recovery period. So your life has changed and you live differently, but it doesn't mean you can't optimally function or you'll never be happy. Um, for me, my own depression still kind of cycles and I think of it like a train that the train comes through and it's going to pass and it'll probably come around again. Right, right. What are the percentages, if it is known? I'm not sure if it is. What are the percentages as opposed to the general population of mental health um, issues with sports um, and, more importantly, high-level athletes? So, uh, in general, um, what we're seeing from limited research is that Athletes are experiencing mental health challenges and mental illness more specifically at at least the same rate as the general population. And in certain sports with certain illnesses, that'll be a bit higher. So uh, eating disorders are by far the most studied mental illness in the sport context. And uh, that can that has reached in some studies up to 70% of athlete populations. Now, there is a very big range uh, and aesthetically based sports like a diving, swimming, um, ice, uh, figure skating, those are going to have a wrestling uh, with weight classes. Those are going to have a higher incidence of, of an eating disorder as opposed to something like basketball. Um, we also know that uh, individual sport athletes tend to be um, are more likely to be depressed than a team sport athlete, likely due to the, the social support system that a, a team provides. Interestingly, though, the team context also creates a very uh, difficult landscape to navigate when you're the athlete 
uh, who's suffering from mental illness. Um, so research, there isn't a ton. And that's one of the things we want to do at the center is, uh, especially in the Canadian context, create more research in this area. How do you feel that you are only one, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you are only one of two centers in the world, uh, the UK and Canada, you being Canada, uh, that have a facility like yours. Why, yes. why are we here in the 21st century looking at just the number two? It's a great question. I mean, it's a massive undertaking, especially in the Canadian context because of the way that our healthcare system works. Uh, the first is actually in, in Sweden. And because they have a national healthcare system, uh, it was much easier to set up. We are running into a lot of barriers around provincial regulations and billing, uh, who can see province interjurisdictionally and or who can see patients interjurisdictionally and things like that. Um, in addition to that, I don't think sport has been ready to address this issue, certainly even in the last five years. Um, so although it's sort of a no brainer to a lot of us, there's still a lot of other people who are like, what do you mean athletes and mental illness? So it hasn't quite sunk in yet for everyone. So when you say it's funny, because when you say, what do you mean athletes and mental illness? As I was, you know, kind of studying up on what you guys do, I, it, 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 it dawned on me to ask, is it possible that the high level of competition and the fact that children start competing so much younger in a structured competitive environment, is it possible that the sport itself is engendering and promoting mental illness amongst uh, the athletes? Yeah, certainly we see a lot more early sports specialization from our, our like young children. And a lot of that's due to parents wanting to be uh, have the next Olympian or the next NHL player. So they're putting their kids in sports really early. But research shows that Early sports specialization has a lot of negative effects, including on uh, mental and psychological health and on the development of uh, youth, their, their physical literacy and their skills. Um, so early sports specialization definitely has, uh, a has played a role in uh, maybe an increase. I can't say that for sure, but an increase in uh, the mental health challenges we're seeing in athletes. Um, it certainly, sport creates a stressful environment. Um it adds a whole layer of stress that you don't have as a non-athlete. And so if you have a genetic predisposition to have a mental illness, that stressful environment can be a trigger uh, for a psychological concern or will exacerbate something that's already there. It's interesting, Krista, that you, you say that because with young athletes that go into elite organizations, be it an NFL or a soccer or a basketball or baseball, they will have physical screening to assess anything that might present later on in their career or whatever. But how, how far are we away from addressing the mental issue about being able to identify, seeing, as you say, they might be predisposed by their, their own genealogy to have some kind of condition? How far do you think we're away from seeing that become an integral part I mean, certainly we have the tools now to screen for mental health challenges as athletes are coming into programs or institutions. It's just not recognized universally that an athlete's well-being and performance is not only linked to their physical health, but also to their mental health. So people could implement these 
uh, procedures tomorrow, whether they're going to or not, has a lot to do about mental health literacy and awareness that we just haven't reached yet in the sport community. Wow. So speaking of that, because we've got about two minutes left and God, we could talk to you all day on this. I we mean, could, by the way. I yes. mean, it's, it's amazing how expansive this topic is and how how esoteric it is because there's so many people that really need to be educated about mental health and it really is health it's about mental health it's it, you know at some point we have to divorce ourselves from the conversation of just like you know oh that dude is crazy or you know <laughs> yeah. that that whole thing like you know uh but you know um what what I want to ask is if you if you know that you see someone that may need help is someone who's exhibiting some signs that says, hey, red flag of any sort. What is the best way to encourage, direct, or steer that person towards the help that they need? Uh, well, a few things. First, I'd, I'd want people to know that what they're looking for is significant changes in the way that people are functioning, whether it be weight loss or changes in their behavior. Um, over about a two-week period or sustained over a two-week period. And then it really depends if the person is a minor or an adult. Um, in a youth sport setting, say you're the coach, um, I would first always speak to the athlete because there are things that are – mental health is very private for some people. They may not be ready to disclose that to a parent or um, loved one. So speak to them first and, and sort of ask permission. Um, if it is a child, then you may want to get a parent involved. Uh, if it's an adult, uh, I would just con not confront the person, but have an honest conversation and say, these are the things that I've noticed about you lately. Are you doing okay? And just be bold enough to ask that question. Are you doing all right? Because you, no, I was just going to say that you'll you'll regret not asking. Yeah, that's a great question. It's so simple. Like, uh, you don't even think about it. You know, hey, are you doing okay? Not, because here's what we do, and we're so used to this. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. And that's it. You know, we say it as a greeting, not as an actual question. And so you're saying, take that greeting and turn it into an actual question. Hey, are you doing okay? Like, you know, you you want to talk to me? Are you is everything all right? Are you doing okay? That's a that's so simple that it, I, that I can't so believe. <laughs> it's so and, simple. <laughs> and adding those specific behaviors will make it easier for the person to talk about it because like are you doing okay is such a broad blanket question right. but if you name specific things then they can address those in their response to you. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that makes perfect sense. It's like you're identifying the change in behavior. You're identifying what seems to be problematic in the person's life. And then you're addressing that while expressing concern and saying, hey, are you doing OK? I mean, it, I can't believe how freaking simple that is. Keep it simple, stupid. Keep oh, it yeah. Simple. The kiss method. Absolutely. Sometimes it is the best way of dealing with things. Uh, Krista Van Slingerland, thank you so much for your time and for opening Chuck's mind to the simplicity of life. Uh, Krista Van Slingerland, the co-founder of Canada's first centre for mental health and sport. Thank you so much. Well, that's it, Chuck. That's our mental health show. Thank you to Royce White, professional basketball player and a man who looks like he's going into mixed martial arts. And of course, 
the Doctor Heather Berlin and of course Krista Van Slingerland. Um, hopefully it has been thought-provoking. Hopefully we have been able to open your mind to aspects of mental health that you weren't quite aware of. I think I'm in that last part, uh, most definitely. Um, from Chuck and I, this has been Playing With Science. Um, thank you so much for listening. We look forward to your company very, very soon. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Goodyear Auto Service takes pride in caring for your car. Get in the groove with Goodyear's technician tips. Number 13, inspect your tread. Like a podcast, you're an investigative journalist finding the cracks in the case. And number 64, pump your brakes before you crank that debate. Coming in for routine brake checks are essential for your safety. Goodyear Auto Service, here for the bumps in the road. Get more tips at GoodyearAutoService.com.